tell people I'm a hybrid between a residential agent and a commercial agent. There's this kind of little sliver there that we've mastered over the last 10, 12 years. And it's different. You're not working with a private equity firm or large syndication groups. Our typical clientele is the guy who's a multimillionaire but owns the car repair shop or the insurance firm or does some CEO of some company. That was David Childers, who found a sweet spot right in the middle of one of the fastest growing real estate markets in the country. Stay tuned to learn more about this niche and why you might want to consider this as part of your investing strategy. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley, and for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate, and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. Well, all right. Welcome, partners. This is, again, your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by David Childers. So David is the CEO at Residential Investment Advisors. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jake, for having me. I appreciate being on these podcasts anytime. This is going to be a fun conversation because you've got a slightly different on yeah. you know what we typically talk about with large multifamily. You're coming at it from a different angle, so I can't wait to get into that. But let's set the stage here. If you wouldn't mind, share a little bit about your background, you know, maybe some of your experience that that led to RIA, and then we'll pick it up from there. Yeah, I kind of I tell people I kind of went backwards, right? I was actually a multifamily investor that then moved into the brokerage space. A lot of times we see brokers move, you know, from brokering and then into the ownership. And I went the other way. You know, my story, and I think it goes great with your podcast, is I was in the music business here in Nashville and, you know, kind of decided it was a dead end job. And, you know, started thinking about doing real estate and flipping houses and that this was back in 2006. So I've been doing it quite a while and found a couple guys in California who had money, but not time. Right. And I had lots of time because I was broke, 26 year old working in Nashville in the music business. And uh, so I had lots of time and no money. And so we kind of put our skill set together and started buying smaller multifamily. So start off with a duplex and a couple smaller and start building a portfolio. And then one of the partners and I ventured into a 114 unit complex in 2007. And I still own that complex today. And I think it goes great with your intro talking about you know, the greatest, you know, asset, you know, you have is your time. And uh, I think back about Jim and, you know, again, he utilized my time and I utilized his money to kind of, you know, take this thing and move it forward. And, you know, that's kind of where I got started. And then, you know, the crash happened and um, I started seeing all these multifamily deals come up as REO properties. And I had not learned about traditional syndication, which, you know, a lot of people now are obviously well-versed in it, but I saw these great deals that had a tremendous cash flow. And I thought, man, I've got to figure out a way to capitalize on all these deals I'm finding. I wish that now I would have been you know, better prepared to have capital raised. So I started the brokerage firm and just started brokering multifamily. And that's kind of where RIA, you know, evolved from. So that's kind of a short version of my story. Well, I think it's a really interesting story, right? Because one, you're in Nashville and Nashville has just gone through some tremendous, I spent a good bit of time there several years ago, right before the pandemic, we were actually getting ready to move. 
And I think you've seen the upswing. You're probably looking back and like, man, I wish I'd bought a half of these properties because I would have, my life would have been different. But, you know, again, I think you started big multifamily, kind of moved into the brokerage, and now you're helping other people find multifamily deals. And they're typically a little bit smaller than, you know, like these aren't the hundred unit complexes. I know you've got one, but let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. So our niche is anything from two to 50 units. And that's really what we built the brokerage firm around is I tell people I'm a hybrid between a residential agent and a commercial agent. There's this kind of little sliver there that we've mastered over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. And it's different. It's, um, you know, you're not working with a, you know, a firm out of, you know, private equity firm or, you know, large syndication groups. Our typical clientele is, you know, the guy who's a multimillionaire, but owns, you know, the car repair shop or the insurance firm, or, you know, does some, you know, CEO of some company and honestly doesn't want to be part of a syndication. They want to kind of own their little piece and not have to, you know, answer to anybody. And, you know, we've kind of figured out who our clientele is, you know, and so if you tell them, Hey, you're only gonna make six or 7%, you know, cash on cash return on a deal, you know, they don't have to go, well, I'm paying my investors, you know, 10%, right? So it's a little bit different, the group we work with than, you know, probably maybe some of your, you know, people listening to this podcast, the passive investor, my, the people that utilize RIA want to be active. A lot of them, again, are are entrepreneurial in spirit, right? So they're not, they're used to setting up corporations and having accountants and wearing all the different hats as an entrepreneur. But we have people that call us too, that they don't, they're not a good fit to buy their own multifamily. Cause we tell people, if you're buying a duplex, you're buying a business, right? You're buying a quadplex, you're buying a business. And there, and there's P and L's, there's bank statements. There's, you know, all the different things as owned in a business that you don't know if you've maybe worked your corporate job, you know, an entire life. So there's people that fit with us and don't fit with us. And that's kind of what Cedar Rock has kind of turned into is, you know, for me, if you don't fit in this, you know, mold that you want to buy your own multifamily and do everything yourself, maybe, you know, then you can put money in Cedar Rock and put money in bigger investments that I've done, you know, on the side. It's kind of, you know, what I've been doing longer than RIA, but, you know, so we kind of have two options, but yeah, I, you know, we, you know, the small multifamily is so unique with the ownership and, you know, work my a team of five agents that work for me now. And, you know, it's honestly, I would say it's more difficult to sell a 20 unit that's been owned by the same family for 20 years than sell your 500 unit complex. We're creating P and L sometimes, some times people don't have leases. They're almost a disaster sometimes, but you know, again, we're so well-versed in this. We know the lenders, how what they're going to look at. We know how the appraisers are going to look at things. You know, it, it's not hard for us where I have, you know, brokerage firms that are large and they, you know, get the asset managers all talking and they're done. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting angle too, because one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is that there are certain people that this is good for, and there are certain people that it's not. And I think you were just kind of hitting on it, but let's talk about what it means to be active because it's a lot of work. And I know yeah. you just kind of hit it on the surface, but there's a lot of people like me, like I started very active and I've gotten to a point where it's like, I don't really want to be so active anymore. I think there are people that are better at this, but maybe one, what's it like to be active? And then two, where are some of the areas where you maybe you can offload it like property management 
or even an accountant that can take some of that load off your plate? Well, we just sold an asset that I personally, you know, had syndicated down in Pensacola, Florida. And I don't think, you know, when you get people putting money in deals, they don't understand. I, you know, I was the asset manager, you know, the active manager of the LLC, you know, day to day, you know, weekly talking to the property management company. You know, we had a hurricane two years ago, had to fly down there, spend two days on site dealing with insurance. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it, you know, that kind of laugh at the whole like mailbox money that people say, you know, I, it's not that, um, you know, again, we've offloaded a couple assets that we've had for five or six years recently. And, you know, I told my wife, actually, we're in Nashville today, big storms coming through, tornadoes, all that. And I go, you know, tonight I don't have to watch the news and worry about one of my assets and thinking I'm going to get that, you know, phone call that a roof's gone or half the building's gone. And I think a lot of people that are passively investing don't really see all of that. I mean, the banking, the, you know, dealing with taxes every year, rebidding insurance every year. So it is a very, you know, demanding job, you know, being on that active side, you know, and I think in this competitive market, there are certain people that are seeing deals that I'm not going to see. So I'd rather put my money in the, in a great deal that they found and know that they're great operators and spending my time and spinning my wheels, you know, flying all over the country, looking at deals. I think that's something to also consider, but yeah, I mean, being active and owning this stuff, mostly on the smaller things, you're, you know, you're in constant contact with your management company, your banking, you know, banking, the loans, you know, all, there's a lot to it that people don't really calculate until they get into it. Yeah, when you think about maybe the smaller assets, multifamily, what is kind of like the break-even point? Because you're saying you're kind of looking up to about 50 units. You know, I've, there's a rule of thumb. It's like generally you get above 100 units, you can have on-site property management. And there's kind of like points where things become a little bit more efficient. Like what's your take on that? And how do you describe that to potential investors? It really all comes down to if you can find good management, right? I mean, every deal that we see, I mean, it could be a duplex and, you know, it's a great deal, but if you can't find management for it, it could be a hundred unit. I've bought properties in these really small markets and it's impossible to find good property management companies. And so something that I thought was going to be just amazing was almost a headache just because again, the property management side of it. So I think that's one of the things that you really have to consider is, you know, Who's going to manage it? You know, if it's, you know, even if it's small break even point, you know, that used to always be the talk. You go to any guru seminar and oh, 100 units or more. Well, you're also playing now in the sandbox with big, you know, firms out of New York or even here in Nashville. We got a couple companies that own 20, 30,000 doors. A, they're going to outbid you. And even if they don't outbid you, then, you know, they're going to get the deal just because they own more doors. You know, it's a, a you know, I've had candid conversations with brokers and it's like, you know, who owns, you know, we got three offers and, you know, the, the large firm owns 30,000 doors and you own five, 5,000 doors, 3,000 doors. The large firm's going to get that deal 90% of the time, just because they're more sure to close. Right. You know, then the thinking was, let's go down and, you know, buy under a hundred doors. Well, now some of these big firms are starting to say, Hey, we'll buy 50, 60 units if we can get some, you know, economies of scale in a certain market. And so that's where it's even become more and more competitive. So I think that's where, you know, I can't give you an exact number, you know, it becomes, you know, you know, it, the, the biggest thing I too is lending, you know, if you're going and buying a, you know, 10, $20 million complex, you can get great lending. And, you know, there's Freddie and Fannie financing that gives you some of the same benefits. If you're buying that million dollar, $2 million multifamily that, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, that was not in existence six years ago. So 
eight or 10 years ago, when you're buying a 25 unit complex for $2 million, you had to go to a bank and get bank financing and be on a 20 year AM. But now you do have Freddie and Fannie, which has kind of opened up the market a little bit as well. Yeah, I think that's a really great point is that lending has changed. I know, like, let's just go back in time that there used to be a limit of like four or five per social security number that Fannie and Freddie would take over. And now that number is 10. You know, I think that what they're willing to invest in has changed. I think there's some really good, you know, benefits here to kind of looking at deals. And the other point that I thought was really important is that, you know, when you get to a certain size, right, you are competing with private equity and large investors, institutional style investors. The other point that you made, which I see a trend in the market as well, is that as the market has gotten extremely competitive, cap rates have compressed in the multifamily space. You're seeing these bigger players like move out of their typical comfort zone, 200 doors. Now they're at 100. Now they're looking at 50 because right. of what's available. And I guess the trend for you maybe is you as you're working with potential buyers that are in this market, how do they show competitively? Right. How do they get across to the broker when they're competing against now the institutional player? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, we're always trying to, you know, you know, how, you know, resumes, how many deals have you done? You know, have we done deals with you? You know, as a broker, you know, our paycheck is dependent on if you're going to close. And, you know, so I want to know everything about you. We want pre-approval letter. We want to talk to your lender, you know. You know, do you have 1031 money? Where's the equity coming from? Are you raising it? Is it just you? Are you the decision maker? You know, do you have a lender that's pre-called you or at least talked to you? Who's going to manage it? And I'm actually holding an event here in Nashville in, in April. And, you know, we've got a really strong network of vendors that if you're interested in buying multifamily here in Nashville, you know, we hook you up with property managers and everybody in our network. And, you know, if you've come into our kind of fold, you know, it, it makes us feel a little bit more comfortable because, you know, I can call the insurance guy and I can call the banker and I can call the property manager and, you know, we all are networking well together. And so as a broker, I can go back to the owner and say, Hey, you know, I've talked, I know who he's getting lending from. I know that they're lending. I know who, you know, the, what the property manager is going to tell him and is saying to him, I know how much his insurance is going to cost. You know, his underwriting, I think is correct. I think his expectations of return are correct. You know, we have a deal right now that's not falling apart, but there's some problems with it. And it was a California person who didn't see the property. They just made an offer sight unseen. That's always a problem for me. If you're that serious about buying a couple million dollar property, hop on a plane, you know, make an appearance. That goes a long way. You know, I won deals down in Florida because I did that. I got OMs from brokers. I liked the deal. The next day I was down there, you know, on site. And I think that goes a long way to prove to the brokers that you're serious. But I also think it's building relationships. If you think you're just going to call a broker and the next thing he's going to do is just hand you this piece of gold, you're crazy. And so you got to build these relationships with brokers and it takes time, takes a lot of energy, but it also takes honesty. I always laugh like these people that call me they have no experience and that's fine. Like we are willing, you know, I do sales through education. So I love to educate these people, you know, clients on the business. And, and so the people that call me and don't, they kind of use in words that they really don't know what they mean. And they just act fake with me and they're not honest with me about where they are in their investing career. And um, I can't help you at that point. Right. So just be honest with brokers. Don't, you know, don't call and say, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I've got 10,000 doors, 10,000 doors, right? You know, did you put, you know, a grand into this syndication? Be honest where you are with your, you know, investing career with the brokers because they're going to be able to sniff that out and, you know, really quickly. Yeah. I mean, those are 
really fair points about like, you've got to sell your broker first, right? Because your broker then has a sales job to go to the other broker likely and say, this is why this is going to work. Let's turn the page a little bit in terms of there are people that get into this game, probably like you're saying, like a doctor or a lawyer or somebody that's got some money. They're like, I want to get some passive mailbox money. They jump into the game and then, you know, a couple years down the road, they're like, I got to get out of this thing, right? Clearly it creates opportunities for people that really want to play. But what are the biggest mistakes that you see people making? I think that, I think what you just said, they think it's going to be mailbox money and they don't understand, you know, managing the management company. I've had clients call me in the past and just talk about how much of a disaster and I go buy the asset myself. And I'm like, when, you know, I ask what simple question, when was the last time you actually went to your asset? Oh, it's been years. Well, that there's part of the problem, right? I mean, you still, even you have to manage the management company. You have to have the expectations, you know, budgeting, things like that. So I think that's, you know, the biggest misconception is I'm just going to buy this property and then I'm going to, you know, go and live my life and never hear from, uh, you know, never be involved in it. And I think that's, I think that's that disconnect that entrepreneurs for the most part understand they're not going to be able to do that and that there's really nothing truly passive. Right. And so I think that's probably the biggest kind of wake up call to a lot of them. And that's, I think what we offer is kind of that. I'm going to tell you that if you come to my office and meet with my team and, and kind of start throwing out that, you know, mailbox money. And I want this super, I'm going to just stop you right there and say, you know, there, you are going to have to be involved mostly in the beginning. I think you start building that rapport and relationship with the property management company. You kind of know what each other wants and years down the road, it becomes more passive. I think about the 114 unit complex that I own, uh, you know, I might go down there three times a year. They give me a good budget at the beginning, you know, in November, they stick to their budget. You know, there's a trust factor that's been built over years, but in the beginning I was at that property, maybe weekly, monthly until, you know, kind of, I gave them a little bit longer leash and they gave me a longer leash. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing though, is understanding that it's not going to be passive money. Yeah. And that's, I think as we think about like the limited partner community that we're creating here, I think that's what most people want. I also think that there is an allure to, like you said, doing it yourself. Where do you think the benefits are? So let's just say that I'm a limited partner. I'm working with great operators. I've been getting consistent, great returns. Why would I consider pulling out? Let's just say I've got time, right? Like why would I consider kind of pulling out of like being a limited partner and passive and thinking about going more active? Like where's the, where's the value? Yeah, I think for most that I, you know, I've sold 600 small multifamilies now in the last, you know, 10 years, right? I think most of it comes down to control. They want to control when that asset's going to sell, when they're going to get their money out and being limited. They don't like that part of it, right? Is putting my money in a deal in five or six years, I can have my money back or three or whatever. I think it's, I think it's the control issue. But I think when you're bit passive, you know, if you're passive on my deals, you're tapping into 17 years of operating multifamily properties, right? You're getting the benefit of everything that's in my head that I know how to increase the value and, you know, you know, bring the expenses down and, and deal with all these issues we've talked about insurance, how to bid it out, find vendors. So yes, I'm getting the benefit of using your money to buy a bigger deal, but you're getting the benefit of, you know, everything that's in my head. Right. And that's, you know, pushing these values and, you know, the experience that I bring to the table. But I think 99% of the time people want to do their own thing. It's a control, you know, 
the deal and when they exit. And I think they just don't want to answer to anybody. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, when you're raising capital to do a deal, right? You know, these people are going to call you. They're going to, you know, ask you questions. They're going to, you know, kind of put your feet to the fire about rates and returns and timeframes and all that. And, you know, there's certain people that they just don't want to deal with that. They, they want to just do their thing. And, and then just maybe legacy owners, some want to, you know, pass these properties down to the generational, which I think most people are getting away from these days. That's kind of an old school way of thinking. But so again, that comes down to kind of the control side of it. You know, when we think about control, like when you were talking, it kind of resonated with me because I've been in real estate for 15 years. I have a really valid opinion, I think, in terms of like what these investments should be doing and in terms of timing, maybe when we should buy, when we should be selling and, you know, probably property management as well. So I could totally see that maybe if I was investing, you know, more actively, like, yes, I'm in total control and I feel comfortable with that. Now I've recognized about myself that I need to pull back from all of the active and get more into the passive side. But at the same time, like it's probably one of those situations where maybe somebody that's got experience is going to have an opinion. Whereas like to your point, if you find a great operator, they should be thinking about all of the things that you're already thinking about, but you know, they've got several different layers of experience and knowledge and why they're doing things a certain way. And I think there's a lot of value to that. So maybe there's some dichotomy there. What are your thoughts there? Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the beautiful thing about what we do when we're talking about this multifamily is like, you can, I put money in, you know, great operators deals and I'm syndicating, raising capital. I'm buying small stuff when it comes across my plate that makes, and I don't think there's like, this like perfect way you have to do it. Right. I mean, it, you know, again, you know, I think as you've done maybe in your career, you were started out active and are moving more passive. I'm doing the same thing, right? I'm looking at putting money in my deals and putting my money to work that I didn't have in the beginning. Right. My, my role with like the gym guy that I kind of started this conversation off with has kind of flip-flopped, right? I was the kid with no money. Now I'm the older man with money. And so I'm looking for the younger kid, right. That's out there finding the deals. And so, I think that's where, you know, this is such a fun game to play is because there's just so many opportunities. I was talking to this large syndicator about that the other months ago, she and I were having lunch and I said, we well, what kind of deals? I don't care if it's a duplex or if it's a thousand unit portfolio, the deal's a deal, right? And so I think we're all just looking, you know, for different things in our career and that changes, right? I think that was when I first started this is like, this is how I'm going to be. I'm going to be a, a guy who collects doors. I'm never going to sell anything. And man, that, you know. That, that has gone out the back door and I've changed my thinking and grown and learned and, you know, got more mature. And I think, you know, it just keep an open mind. You know, if you find a great operator uh, and you have capital, you know, all of us, a lot of us have a lot of capital right now and you're just looking for places to put it. You know, if you find a good operator uh, and there's still meat on that bone of that deal, like do it. You know, I think that's a great play for you know, again, it just depends on where you are in your career. If you don't have any capital and you're looking to get in this, go hunt down deals, find deals, you know, knock on doors, you know, you got to put the work in. Yeah, those are great points because, you know, you think about where the opportunities lie. There are always opportunities. Like you could take a general rule of thumb and Nashville is a great example. I was looking for properties in Nashville pre-pandemic and thought everything was overpriced. Right now <laughs> you come into the yeah. pandemic and it's a totally different... But there's still yeah. opportunities out there, right? Right. Yeah, there are. There absolutely are. I mean, there's still those legacy owners out there that you know you need to build a relationship with, and you know, knowing what's going on with the city. And then you know, we do a lot of we do deals from Knoxville over to Jackson, and then 
you know, from state line to state line. So we're kind of all over middle Tennessee and yeah, we're seeing deals out, you know, now as Nashville expands, just like any city, it has this urban sprawl. It just, it keeps, you know, all the small communities around Nashville are feeling the effects of Nashville. You know, we're still selling deals that, you know, make sense. And, you know, that's another thing is like, what makes sense for you might may not make sense for me. Right. And I had to get over that when I started brokering because you know, I don't like that deal. It doesn't fit what I'm looking for. And a guy kind of shook me like a doctor and goes, man, it's exactly what I'm looking for. So as a broker, I had to kind of learn to shut my mouth and listen instead of, you know, opening my mouth. And just because the deal didn't work for me, doesn't mean it doesn't work for somebody else. Yeah. There's opportunity everywhere. And just knowing where you are in the market, I think is most probably the most important thing. You know, I think right now, you know, my concern is anybody that has kind of maybe a short-term thinking that, you know, they're going to buy this asset and push the value. And in two years, they're going to flip it. And that's where most of the return is going to be to their investors. I think, you know, it's a scary time to be thinking that way. I think you've got to think about debt. You know, right now we're seeing Freddie and Fannie went up a quarter percent in the last cut. You know, you got to think about that debt piece. And that's again, why I'm working on the brokerage side with, you know, the guy who's buying the property, the doctor, the physician, whatever by himself, because he controls that timeline. You know, if we're, if it does some kind of correction, he's okay because his plan wasn't to sell it for 10 or 15 years anyways. But I think if you have, you know, 50 investors have put money in a deal and they're expecting to see a, you know, 20% IRR in three years, you know, that's a little bit risky for me right now to think about. Well, David, this has been a fantastic conversation. I always like to end every podcast with a bit of gratitude because none of us got to where we are by ourselves, right? Somebody gave us a leg up. It sounds like, you know, you had a guy out of California that had some money that gave you a chance that maybe you didn't deserve, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to maybe give somebody a shout out that gave you that leg up along the way. Yeah, I would like to shout out to all my clients that have trusted me with the brokerage firm for the last 12 years. You know, you know, I tell people I'm a college dropout, right? And now, you know, I get calls from people who, you know, are certified financial planners, attorneys, and CPAs all wrapped in one, you know, manage billions of dollars. And they're always calling me, asking me for my advice. And, you know, the clients who have, you know, in the beginning, you know, I knew a little bit, probably was more confidence than actually knowledge, but, you know, they trusted me to, to sell them an asset and help them and, you know, really kickstart my career. So I've got to thank them, all the clients of residential investment advisors. People have put money in my deals in the past, you know, and prayed and hoped that it would go well. I've got to, you know, thank them for entrusting me with their, you know, and I try to never take it lightly. I actually put a Facebook post up the other day saying, you know, treat your money as if it was mine. And so all those people that I've come in contact with, I've definitely got to thank. Well, David, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Jake, for putting this together. And you know, what you're doing is great. Awesome. We'll see, We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows. So I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.